Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation set the world on fire, theologically and spiritually, as genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the Roman Catholic system of false worship and found truth in the teachings of Scripture, which were being clearly and boldly proclaimed by the chief reformer, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a German Catholic monk until he was saved by the grace of Jesus Christ alone and not by his works, which the Roman system had taught him to pursue. Salvation by works. Once saved, however, Luther found it necessary to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints, which had been hijacked by the Pope and the Roman Catholic system of man-centered worship and salvation by works and penance. Luther's presentation of truth and refutation of the Roman Catholic system came by way of public debate. He knew the value of discipleship, and so he trained men around him to defend the faith. Luther was not alone at Leipzig in 1519 when he debated Johann Eck on the free will of man and the grace of God. Again, in 1529, Luther was not alone at the Marburg debate against Ulrich Zwingli, when Luther unfortunately defended his errant position on the real presence of Christ and found in the communion elements of the Lord's table. He had found and been trained men, disciples, who would follow him, who would train under him and continue to confess Jesus Christ as Lord once he was dead and gone. When Luther was physically unable to attend the Augsburg debate, 1530, one of his brightest young disciples, a man named Philip Melanchthon, stepped in, age 33, and he represented Luther's position. Young Philip had drafted what is officially known as the Augsburg Confession, which clearly articulates the greatest tenets of our faith. Melanchthon was an incredible young talent in his own right. Desiderius Erastus once said of, of him, Great God! What expectations the young Philip Melanchthon arouses? He is only a boy, and yet he has already achieved eminence in both Greek and Latin. What ability he displays in argument. How pure and elegant his words. What tenderness and refinement in his extraordinary genius. Martin Luther also was well aware of the strengths of his disciple. Luther saw the humor of God in the contrast of the two men's personalities. Luther said, I am rough, boisterous, and stormy, born to fight hosts of devils and monsters. My job is to remove stumps and stones, cut away thorns and thistles, clear away wild forests. Then along comes Master Philip, gently and softly, sowing and watering with joy, according to the gifts which God has abundantly granted to him. The relationship between Luther and Melanchthon was truly one of the greatest discipleship relationships the church has ever known, and it proved the power of Jesus' great commission, where you are in Matthew 18, verse 18, where Jesus says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our Savior, friends, he has expectations of our behavior. Jesus has commanded baptism and discipleship. And he has fully equipped us for both by sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts, washing and cleansing us from our sins and creating in us a willing, humble, submissive, obedient, worship-filled heart, ready for service to Christ and to his bride, the church. Would you turn to your Bibles now to John chapter 1, verse 35. Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of the affairs of men. He knows and sets the boundaries of our habitation. 
He knows the number of hairs that are on our head and the number of days appointed for us as yet there was not even one. As a result of his sovereign control over all things, especially people into whom he has sent his Holy Spirit, it should not surprise us that men and women are found obedient to Jesus Christ in this life. There are obedient slaves of Christ sitting next to you right now. It must not surprise us that men and women called, chosen, and saved by God are obedient in baptism and become members in a local church. That they are submissive to the elders in the church and use their spiritual gifts to serve the church. It shouldn't surprise us that they are regularly attending service and receiving regularly the instruction joyfully of the Word of God. They are those who are faithfully praying for the church and evangelizing the lost in our community. And they are those who are eagerly involved in discipleship relationships, both encouraging and being encouraged by others. The power of Jesus Christ for the last 2,000 years is seen in Jesus' obedient, disciple-making men and women. That's what we have seen for the last 2,000 years, building his church. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That verse speaks of four-generational discipleship faithfulness. This is what is happening in our text today. As we come to day three of what I call Word Witness Week in John chapter 1. In our text today, we see discipleship, faithfulness, obedience, and the fruit of water baptism as two disciples of John the Baptist take off and follow Jesus. D.A. Carson says in John 1.35, where you are now, two, the two disciples mentioned here are not scurriously abandoning the Baptist in favor of a more prestigious leader, but are being truest to the teaching of the forerunner, John the Baptist. Well, praise the Lord. The witnessing ministry of John the Baptist is found to be a success in our text today. The Holy Spirit living inside of John the Baptist from before he was born has perfectly equipped John to meet all of Jesus' expectations of his forerunner ministry, which is all about witnessing. It's about testifying and confessing Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the chosen one of God. His baptism of repentance and confession of Jesus as the Lamb of God was exactly what these men in our text today needed to hear. Their hearing resulted in their being drawn and called by the Lord to follow Jesus on the third day of this first full week of Jesus' ministry. You might ask, how do we know that we are looking in our Bibles at one full week's worth of ministry here that opens up Jesus' ministry? Well, John chapter 1 includes seven-day chronological language outlining our text in John 1, 29, 35, 39, 43, and chapter 2, verse 1. It appears that John himself came up with this seven-day chronological framework by leaning heavily on Genesis chapter 1, which also has, as you might be familiar with, a seven-day chronological framework. Not to mention, John saw fit to copy and paste the opening words of Genesis 1-1 into his own gospel at John 1-1, where he says, in the beginning. However, brothers and sisters, be assured of this. The life of the text that we are reading today is not found in John's seven-day chronology, nor his Genesis chapter 1 theme. The life of the text in front of us today is found in the confessions of Christ captured by John over the course of these seven days. The Apostle John seems intent on capturing ten confessions of Jesus' deity, which happened 
by the mouths of five men and Jesus' mother on the first seven days that Jesus returned from the wilderness after being tempted by Satan for 40 days. We have found, as we have studied this text, day one of Word Witness Week, confession number one at John 1.23. We call this the forerunner confession where John quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, and testified that his job is to pave the way in the hearts of the people for Messiah. At John 1.26, we have confession number two, the sandal-strap confession, where John declares the authority and the honor due to the Messiah that will come after him, the strap of whose sandal he is unworthy to untie. On day two of Word Witness Week, we are at John 1.29. We have confession number three, the Lamb of God confession, in which John the Baptist, he captures the greatest sacrificial lamb imagery in the Old Testament and permanently fixes a title on Jesus who is forever to be known as the sacrificial lamb of God. And at John 1.34, we have confession number four, the chosen of God confession. This is John's ultimate report, the chosen of God confession, which he gives after hearing directly from God and beholding Jesus in person. What confession do we have next as we come to day three of Word Witness Week? Well, let's read the text together today from John 1, 35 through 42, which covers days three and four of Word Witness Week as we consider the fruit of the ministry of John the Baptist, both in his witnessing and in his discipleship. Further still, we must consider the fruit of following Jesus. The Apostle John writes in John 1.35, On the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speaking and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Here in our text, we have Confession 5. We have the fruit of John the Baptist's ministry. We have a big transition in our text. Parents and grandparents, I would ask you this. Can you feel with John the Baptist this bittersweet moment in ministry? As we approach day three, can you feel this poignant and tender ministry moment that must be tearing at John the Baptist's heart in two? This is what you might call in popular language a bipolar moment in ministry and life. It is a moment for John the Baptist here as his disciples are leaving that is both delightful and dreadful, heartbreaking and heartwarming, pleasing and painful, spectacular and sorrowful. This is the moment of maximum transition. It's the handoff. It's the trade-up the next phase in life for these two men. Moms and dads, have you felt the intense emotional discomfort of transitional moments in your life? For instance, at the wedding of your daughter, when you realized 
she's not coming home. Or dropping a son off at the Naval Air Station where your training of him is done and now the drill instructors will have their way with him to make him a man. Or sending a son off to college where your influence on a daily basis is no longer needed by God in this stage of his daily sanctification. Many of you have seen this, both in your families and in your ministries. You pour your guts into someone, and then they up and leave and head off to seminary, and you never know if you'll get them back. We just read the book of Acts at chapter 18 that Aquila and Priscilla found a man named Apollos in Ephesus, and they discipled him and invested their lives in him only to see him take off to minister powerfully to those in Achaia. Handing off children and disciples is painful. It tears at your soul, even if momentarily, because it's the best and right thing to do for the building up of the body of Christ, and oddly enough, it's the best and right thing to do for contending with our own sins, our sins of selfishness, of comfort, of laziness. Departures are not pleasant, but they are necessary for growth. You could just ask Jesus himself. He left heaven to come to earth, wear flesh, and learn a thing or two about suffering, didn't he, while he was on earth? If departure from heaven was profitable for our heavenly father and his son, then we must endure the bittersweet departure moments of our children and disciples as well, right? This is the moment we have for John the Baptist in his ministry in our text today. This is a departure text in as much as it is an arrival text. It's a transitional text. The apostle John is going to transition away from the water baptism of John to the spirit baptism of Jesus, from John's forerunner ministry to Jesus' Messiah ministry, from making disciples for the Lamb to being disciples of the Lamb at this major moment of transition in Word Witness Week on day three, we are going to see the fruit of John the Baptist's water baptism ministry. The fruit of John's water baptism is seen in our text today in the transition of the disciples away from John's water baptism of repentance and into personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This is, friends, ministry success. Praise the Lord for this text. The day comes when your children know Jesus on their own. And they're ready to equip other people to know Jesus as well. This is exactly the kind of success that every Christian parent longs to see for their children when their 18-year-old demonstrates personal faith in Jesus. Consider all the ministry fruit, the ministry fruit that's in our text. We have in this text today, we have witnessing fruit, testimony and confession fruit, revelation and prophecy fruit, sovereignty and salvation fruit, obedience and faithfulness fruit. We have the fruit of all three persons of the Trinity working together in multiple men, which results in the mentoring, discipleship, and training in righteousness that they need to produce more glory to God fruit. What we see in the text today is that following Jesus is the focus of every true disciple. Sharing Jesus as God results in the full throttle pursuit of disciples for Jesus, for Messiah. And this is expected of disciples and possible only when the Holy Spirit lives inside of a human being, a wicked sinner like us. Because this, friends, this is the design of God through his free gift of salvation, which is only available in the person 
and work of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you, what is required to be a disciple of Jesus? What confession do you need to hear to be a disciple of Jesus? What sight do you need to see to behold Jesus? What offer do you need to receive to go with Jesus, to follow him? In our text today, John presents three great moments in mentoring that mark the success of preaching repentance. It is in our text today that John shares three points on the path of discipleship that signal the triumph of testifying for, for Christ. What three points on the path of discipleship mark the success of preaching Jesus and repentance? They are these in our text today. The path of discipleship requires, number one, actionable information, verses 35 to 36. Number two, positive identification in verse 37. And number three, gracious invitation in verses 38 and 39. This outline for you again will serve as our outline for this morning. It is this. The three points on the path of discipleship are, number one, actionable information. Positive identification is number two. Gracious invitation is number three. Let's look together now at day three then of Word Witness Week and follow the disciples of the Baptist as they move on to superior sanctification, beholding the Lamb of God personally. We see how this happened as we come to point number one in your notes. The first of three points on the path of discipleship. Number one in your notes is the first of three points on the path of discipleship, actionable information. You need to be a disciple, actionable information. John the Baptist's ministry is spoken of highly in all four Gospels. The fruit and success of his water baptism of repentance is widely known. And in our text today, we see clearly the discipleship aspect of John's ministry. It's absolutely the case that John the Baptist preached to large crowds of repentant Jews. And it's absolutely the case that John chastised and rebuked the Jewish elite who came to challenge his ministry. And it's absolutely the case as well that John the Baptist, in the course of his ministry, was found mentoring and training men for service to Jesus. We see the Baptist discipleship effort here in our text where the Apostle John says in John 1.35, on the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples. This, friends, is day three of Word Witness Week. John is again standing with his disciples along the Jordan River near Bethany, likely in the same spot where they were yesterday on day two. On day two, Jesus returned from the wilderness after enduring 40 days of temptation by Satan. And before Jesus went out into the wilderness, John had baptized Jesus in the same spot here at the Jordan River. That was the beginning of the Baptist's usefulness for Jesus personally. Jesus had returned now to the Baptist at the Jordan River because two more services needed to be supplied to Jesus from John the Baptist, at least two personal services from John to Jesus. First, Jesus needs the Baptist's powerful voice to declare and herald this precious nickname which he gets on day two when the Baptist calls out to the crowd gathered around him in John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Second, Jesus has come for two repentant disciples that God has given to John the Baptist. Jesus came for them. They were gifts of God to John for encouragement and joy in his ministry. Jesus has John has been successful in training them adequately for service to their Messiah. And now, Jesus returns on day three 
to pick them up. I've come to pick them up. And so John is again standing with these two disciples near Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River. Brothers and sisters, as we think about the discipleship that's happening in the text, can I ask you a personal question? Have you been discipled? Have you been mentored in your faith? Have you submitted your life to discipleship by someone who is ahead of you in the faith, more mature than you in the faith, willing to instruct you in the faith? I have, and I can tell you. I praise God for the men that discipled and invested into my life because I didn't make it easy on them. I came loaded with bad theology, bad ideas. I was stubborn. My eyes were slow to open spiritually. My sanctification was slow and happened through a lot of painstaking hours of investing and most often over lunch at the Brooklyn Deli in downtown Spokane. And yet again and again, my mentor would make time for me at his own personal expense and heartache over my slow spiritual growth. And when I read this Greek word palin in our text today, which means again, this has great significance for me. Again and again, mentors and disciples make investments into mentees, into counselees. Just like my mentor, regardless of the personal sacrifice, John was faithfully with these men on day three again. So we ask, who are these men? A quick look ahead in our text at John 1.40 reveals that one of them's name is Andrew, who is best known because of his more popular and more well-recognizable brother, Simon Peter. Simon Peter needs no instruction in the fourth gospel. The apostle John fully expects that his audience already knows Simon Peter, and by extension, they know his little brother, Andrew. The second man is not named, which is a kind of fun and peculiar mystery over the course of the gospel of John. At several other points in the Gospel of John, we run into similar instances of the unnamed disciple of Jesus Christ. He seems, this guy does, to always show up in the most intimate of places and spaces with Jesus, even reclining his head on Jesus' lap at the Last Supper in chapter 13. In chapter 20, Simon Peter loses the race to Jesus' empty tomb to this unnamed disciple. And in chapter 21, Simon Peter is concerned about the fate of the unnamed disciple whom Jesus loved, according to the author. It seems extremely safe to understand that the anonymous disciple is the author of the gospel himself, the apostle John. This is John, the brother of James, who together are the sons of Zebedee, who get the nickname the Sons of Thunder. Their mother is Salome, the sister of Jesus' mother Mary, which makes the apostle John the cousin of Jesus. And while I'm mentioning relationships to you in the family, please remember that John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, was the cousin of Mary and Salome, the two sisters, which makes John the Baptist the first cousin once removed of both Jesus and John the Apostle. Which is to say, John the Baptist was successfully training his extended family to know and love Jesus, which is a real slap in the face to us, isn't it? How many of your family members, the extended part, do you mentor and disciple and train in ministry to know and love and serve Jesus? Not only was John the Baptist faithfully discipling Andrew and the Apostle John again on day three of Jesus' first full week of ministry, further still on this day, the Baptist faithfully spoke actionable information to them 
as his first cousin once removed reports in John 136 when he says, and the Baptist looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Why is Jesus passing by? Why is he giving this flyby in front of John's ministry of baptism for repentance again? Well, first, to get this confession again out of John the Baptist. Second, because Jesus knew that Andrew and the Apostle John were given by the Father to the Son for the purpose of ministry. And third, Jesus knew that today, at the Baptist's fifth confession, that this confession would result in a major ministry transition. So Jesus walks by in full sight of John the Baptist and his disciples. And he got exactly what he had planned and expected from these men into whom he had previously placed salvation. From John the Baptist, Jesus gets confession number five, the Lamb of God confession again. The Lamb of God confession again. As we think about this Lamb of God confession again, to explain it, can I please have you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53. This second Lamb of God confession does not include the restoration work of Christ to reconcile God to man, which John used on day two. On day two, you'll remember that John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. But the Baptist doesn't use this day three occasion to further educate the disciples about the person and work of the Lamb of God to reconcile sinners and redeem them. It seems in John 1.36 the confession of the Baptist is simply given to point to the Messiah, to point him out, to point him out of the crowd for the purpose of sending Andrew and John the Apostle into his service. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the guy right there. It is interesting to notice at this fifth confession from the Baptist, John had options. He could have called Jesus by a new nickname altogether, or he could have used nicknames that he's used in the text already. The first five confessions in our text in John are all John the Baptist, right? He's used these confessions. He's called Jesus the Lord, the coming one, even the chosen one of God in verses 23, 27, and 34. Why did John choose Lamb of God a second time? Why did the Apostle John remember and record that the Baptist said Lamb of God when Jesus showed up? Because sometimes... Titles and nicknames are so perfect, they deserve to be well-worn and even reused over and over by generation after generation. For instance, many of you know the name Babe Ruth, the Hall of Fame New York Yankee pitcher and outfielder from the early 20th century. Which of his many nicknames do you prefer to call him by? The Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Bahamut of Bust, or the Great Bambino? Certainly, you would object if someone accidentally called him the Great Bambi, wouldn't you? No one wants a nickname that pictures them as a weak, mild, even stupid, four-legged field animal. Babe Ruth was the Great Bambino, who hit 714 home runs in his 22-season career. And yet, the Savior of the world would be nicknamed after the weakest, the mildest, the dumbest of all four-legged animals, the Lamb. Why the Lamb of God, John the Baptist? Why give such a soft and silly nickname for Messiah? You're in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where Isaiah the prophet first makes the Lamb metaphor appropriately about us. 
but then applies the lamb word picture to the suffering servant of God, saying in the text at Isaiah 53, 6, all of us, like stupid sheep, have gone astray, each of us having turned to his own sinful ways. But Yahweh has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him, on this one other guy. Who's he? He's the one who was oppressed, verse 7. And he's the one who was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. This one, this suffering servant of God, he is like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. And so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that for the transgressions of my people, striking was due to him, that striking came upon this one. Substitution. The penalty, the substitution, the atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement right here in Isaiah 53, 6, 7, and 8. Here is one of the many Old Testament reasons for using Lamb of God as the most precious title which honors the sacrifice that Jesus will make when he is crucified to pay for the sins of all of those who will, in the world who would ever believe in his name. Reconciliation between God and man is pictured time and time again in the Old Testament through the blood of spotless, sinless, sacrificial lambs. All of these Old Testament pictures were the shadows of reconciliation between God and man. And friends, you get to the New Testament and you recognize Jesus Christ is the substance that created the shadows in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the one true eternal Lamb of God for which all of the other Old Testament pictures pointed. Turn back in your Bibles to John 1.37. John the Baptist didn't miss all of the lamb imagery of the Old Testament by any stretch of the imagination. He nailed it to the, to the contrary of missing it. With the help of the Father and the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist delivers the perfect title for Jesus Christ on John, at John 1.29 on day two of Word Witness Week. He liked the title so much and it fits so well Spoken by John the Baptist as the last Old Testament prophet, that our Father in heaven was well pleased to have the Holy Spirit cause John the Baptist to speak it again here in John 136 as confession number five, the Lamb of God confession again. Lamb of God is nicknamed gold. And spoken a second time in John 136, it becomes actionable information for two of John's disciples. What is the result of this second Lamb of God declaration by John the Baptist? How does the Baptist ministry bear fruit as a result of his name-calling, you could say? We see in the text of John 137 where the Apostle John reports, And the two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. Which brings us to point number two in your notes. The second of three points on the path of discipleship, number two in your notes, is Positive identification. The second of three points on the path of discipleship is number two in your notes at verse 37. Number two, positive identification. Certainly, John the Baptist made a positive identification of Jesus. So positive, so accurate was John the Baptist that two of his men immediately took off. D.A. Carson says, once he had identified the coming one, it was only to be expected that some of his disciples would follow Jesus. 
John MacArthur says, having heard their teacher speak again those powerful words, Lamb of God, the two disciples followed Jesus. Now, I don't believe for a second that this decision to follow Jesus was made in haste, as if unthought, unqualified. I believe that the night before, on day two of Word Witness Week, the Baptist told these men what he, as mentor, expected of them. And I believe that John expected these men to leave him and to follow Jesus. And that's the whole point of a man's ministry, was to make people follow the Messiah. These men needed to be with Jesus for the greatest glory to be delivered to God in their lifetime, particularly over the course of the next three years of ministry of Christ. And the Holy Spirit moved their hearts and minds in that exact direction. They were predestined. These men were called. These men were drawn to Jesus through divine sovereignty. And if you're paying attention, through the personal responsibility of John the Baptist to preach faithfully the word of God. What does this say about the character of John the Baptist? Let's talk about his character for a second. Leon Morris says, It is the mark of a truly great man that he can gently, firmly detach his disciples so that they may go after a greater mentor than him. John MacArthur says, John's willingness to unhesitatingly hand them over to Jesus is further evidence of his self-effacing humility and complete acceptance of his entirely subordinate role. The simple fact that these two disciples followed Jesus is validation and vindication of John's entire baptism, water baptism of repentance ministry. It's little wonder later in Jesus' ministry, Jesus says to a gathered crowd in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And so we clearly see the fruit of the ministry of John the Baptist in his positive identification of Jesus. And yet the fruit of the Baptist ministry is better seen in the positive identification of Jesus made by his disciples. He did it so well that his disciples make a positive identification of Jesus as well. Andrew and the Apostle John make a positive identification of Jesus here in our text. John reports, these two disciples heard the Baptist identify Jesus as the Lamb of God for a second time in two consecutive days. Now, the Baptist himself might have been wondering, how many times will it take for these guys to clue into this? Fortunately, his disciples weren't as dense and stubborn as many of us. They won't require a third positive identification of Jesus from John the Baptist. This second identification does the job. And we find immediately that the disciples followed Jesus. This is a big deal for these men, as they are giving up what is known to embrace what is unknown. Followed is the Greek verb akolotheo, which literally means to follow, to accompany in travel. Figuratively, it means to be a disciple. Literally, the verb is basic and mundane. It speaks of travel. Figuratively, it has this intensity that comes with mentoring training and discipleship. Leon Morris comments on the tense of the verb saying, this tense is appropriate for once for all action, which may indicate that they cast in their lot with Jesus. He goes on to say, they did not mean to make a tentative inquiry, but to give themselves wholly to him. Andrew and the apostle John, they're done with the searching in life. You get to college and you go to local university and you get told a bunch of lies and you start wondering, 
really? What's true? And there's people that are telling you truth, and you're wondering, who's telling me the truth? Where is truth? Well, these men found truth. They found truth. They're done searching. This is truth. What I'm hearing now is truth. They've arrived. They have now found Jesus. Because of John the Baptist, they know where they're going next in life. They know. They've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. This is such an awesome moment for the glory of God, for the church, for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit. Friends, can you understand the totality of the glory that's found in this moment? There's so much spiritual fruit right here in these few words. Again, there's confession fruit. There's witnessing fruit. There's testimony fruit, discipleship fruit, mentoring fruit, salvation fruit, revelation fruit, regeneration fruit. It's all here. This is what it looks like. This is exactly what God pictured in eternity past would happen when he takes the seed of his word and plants it into one heart, and that heart can't stay right there. It has to go and plant it into other hearts. And growth and life and ministry and health and vitality happen as a result of the preaching of the word of God. Every human being on earth must come to reconcile and face this fact. You've been called to follow Jesus. This is where your life must go to follow Jesus, to submit to him as Lord and Savior of your life. This is a decision of your will. Volitionally, at the heart level, following Jesus is deciding that Jesus is king and I am not. In fact, Jesus is king and I am slave. This is a choice that anyone can make if the Holy Spirit of God has washed, cleansed, and regenerated their heart. Andrew and the Apostle John prove here and now they have received the Lord's free gift of salvation. Their positive identification with Jesus, they are walking and following him. The walking and following him is positively identifying them with him. They're going away with him. It's only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. These men are new creatures, happily identifying themselves as slaves of Christ on this day, day three, and they prove to be his slaves over the whole course of the rest of their lives. And that's the question that I have for all of you. Is the Lamb of God your king? Are you Jesus' slave? Have you counted the cost of discipleship with Jesus? Have you, friend, have you decided to follow Jesus? Who taught you to do that? Have you decided to follow Jesus? Who taught you to do that? Is the Holy Spirit inside of you helping you to follow Jesus? It sure helps to have a mentor on the way to making this decision. It sure helps to have someone to explain truth, to share biblical worldview, to answer hard questions, and to positively identify Jesus in the midst of a chaotic world. Mentors have, can help prepare you for rough spots on the path of discipleship, which is exactly what we see next in the text, a rough spot in the path of discipleship. John the Baptist, you see, he positively identified Jesus verbally. The disciples positively identified Jesus physically by following him. And now Jesus turns and positively identifies two men who are following him. John reports in John 138, 
And when Jesus turned and noticed them following, he said to them, what do you seek? Jesus turns several times in the course of his ministry. And when he does turn, it is regularly the case that something extremely profound comes out of his mouth immediately next in the text. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke 14, 25? Luke 14, 25. The Greek verb strafo, which means to turn, to turn away, to change, or even to repent is the word that we see in our text. In our text at John 1, 38, Jesus is turning, strafo, looking, and speaking in rapid succession. He has something to say to these men. In fact, Jesus has a very peculiar question to ask these men. What do you make of the question that Jesus is asking these men? The question, what do you seek? What do you make of this? This doesn't seem extremely friendly to me. What about you? It's not like Jesus said, hey guys, I'm so glad you're following me now. This is great. It's good to have you on the team. Just the opposite is true. This question seems to put the men on the defensive. Some of you are visiting with us today. How would you feel if I came up to you after the service and asked you, what do you seek? That might make you a little defensive, but it might be exactly the question that you need to answer today for me. Maybe I'll ask it later. It reminds me, this question does, it reminds me of my favorite question that I get to ask any young man that spends too much time around either of my daughters. I get to ask that guy, excuse me, young man, what are your intentions with my daughter? That's a great question. It's just like the question that Jesus is asking the disciples in John 1.38. Let me ask you, what does this question from Jesus do? What is the point of the question? What is he after? This question, friends, demands heart-level introspection. It demands that someone know who they are. It demands that they know what they're doing. The question is hunting down motives. What are you after? What do you want? Are you trying to find a good time in following me? Or is it the case that you're following me for the purposes of grace and truth? Why are you here? This question is a second, uh, sorry, this question is a two-handed shove in the chest, coming at a time when you think that Jesus would rather shake the hands of these two men and congratulate these men on making the best decision of their lives. So why then this two-handed shove from Jesus with this question? Why is Jesus pushing back against these men who are trying to follow him? This is a great question, especially coming off of the Super Bowl and the advertisements that suggest to you that, what's the, what's the, what's the, the advertisement? He gets us, right? Does he? Does he get you? He's asking the question, what do you seek? What do you seek? You're in Luke 14, 25, where Jesus turns and gives one of his largest Verbal, two-handed shoves to the chest of the crowd of people seeking to become his disciples in Jerusalem. As Luke reports, saying, Now many crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross 
his own instrument of death and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 men? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And so then, None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. This, friends, is the cost of discipleship with Jesus. Do you still want to follow him? Have you truly counted the cost? Do you know what following Jesus will cost you personally? Turn back in your Bibles to John 1.38. Friends, this is exactly why I personally choose not to baptize children under the age of 15. I don't believe it's necessary to baptize children simply because they make a profession of faith in Jesus. If someone were to say to me, Oliver, if you don't baptize my son who is 12 years old, you will exasperate him. I would say to that parent, Good. Thanks for the extra clarity that I needed in the decision that I'm going to make as an elder in the church. Now I know for certain that your son has not counted the cost of discipleship with Christ and that he should absolutely not be baptized. I've done your son no harm in asking him to wait to be baptized because baptism, friend, is not salvific. Waiting patiently is a frequent task that Jesus Christ calls his disciples to display. And if you're telling me now that your son will get discouraged if he is not baptized immediately, then he most certainly must not be baptized immediately. He needs to work on patience. He needs to find out whether or not he's actually been called of God. If he is a child of God, he should be able to demonstrate patience and obedience. The question for the 12-year-old and all of us is this. Have you actually counted the cost of following Jesus? What is your heart motivation? You see, I was a 12-year-old boy, and I know the motivations of 12-year-old boys' hearts. Consider all the potential heart motivations of a 12-year-old boy for following Jesus and being baptized. I can just imagine a 12-year-old boy getting caught cheating on his math exam at school, and when he gets home, he finds that mom and dad, they're not happy with him at all. He's in a whole bunch of trouble, and he needs to come up with a distraction. He needs to make mom and dad happy with him again. And it's at this moment he decides he's going to follow Jesus because that's what the pastor talked about last week. And when he did, mom and dad smiled a whole lot. And by the weekend, mommy and daddy have forgotten all about the discipline their son needs for being a cheater and the spanking that he needs for being a manipulator because they are so thrilled to talk to the pastor on Sunday about little Johnny accepting Jesus into his heart this past week and needing to be baptized immediately. Well played, young man. Well played. Some parents are just that gullible. Some Christians believe that biblical salvation is something we choose. Friends, it's not chosen. It's given. God is the chooser. We're the receiver. 
Salvation is a free gift that God gives to you that changes who you are at the core of your being down to your heart level because he comes in, he takes your heart of stone, you 12-year-old boy, and he throws it away. And he plants inside of you a new heart that sees how wicked and sinful you actually are. It causes you to repent and then to love Christ and serve his church all the days of your life. So the question has to be, why are you coming to Jesus? Why would you choose to follow him? Or as Jesus puts it in John 1.37, what do you seek? Richard Lenski says, this first word spoken by Jesus in John's gospel is a master question. It bids them look searchingly at their innermost longings and desires. How do the disciples answer Jesus' master question? John captures their answer for us, saying in John 1.38, They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Their answer starts off well enough. Rabbi is a term of polite address and fits the customary form of the disciple-teacher relationship that they long to have with Jesus. Rabbi is a Hebrew transliteration that literally means my great one. Its use shows honor from a student to a teacher. So we're off to a good start. But then they ask this question which seems to be dismissive of Jesus' highly motivated, intensely pressing and probing heart question. And be honest with me, which of you likes to get a question in return for your own question? None of you do. But you've got to love this. This is funny. This is humor. These disciples answered Jesus' question with a question. Was this the best that these men had? Or is this just what fumbled out of their mouths? Because they're nervous. I'm thinking that this was a verbal fumble of the highest caliber. And I'm not going to blame Andrew for this. I, I believe that this was John. And by placing it in the text, John is offering a modest confession of just how awkward it was for him to speak with Jesus when he first came across him on day three. Leon Morris says it's a very natural touch that they did not know what to say to Jesus for where are you staying is not really an answer to the question. Edward Klink says they are not avoiding his question but telling him exactly what they are looking for. They are looking for someone to follow. John MacArthur says they were courteously requesting an extended private interview with him. William Hendrickson says they desired an opportunity for uninterrupted conversation with Jesus. And when I read these comments, I just go, and all of that means that this is a verbal fumble, which requires Jesus to pick up the football of this conversation and throw these guys a verbal pass of grace, which makes sense of all of their awkwardness in their question back to him, which brings us to the third of three points on the path of discipleship. The third of three points on the path of discipleship is number three, gracious invitation gracious invitation. The third of three points on the path of discipleship is number three in your notes, gracious invitation. Where do we see a gracious invitation in our text today? We see a gracious invitation at John 139, 139 where John writes, Jesus said to them, come and you will see. Jesus' response is remarkable, stunning, and gracious all at once. He excuses their full dodge of his heart motivation question. He senses their awkwardness in responding to him, and his grace is seen in this. He stepped right past their awkwardness and commands them to come. Come, come and have access to my life. Turn your Bibles to Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. 
Leon Morris says, this invitation implies more than they should see for themselves the place where he was lodging. It is an invitation to visit him. Randolph Tasker says, more than seeing, he is inviting them to come and gain from him an insight into the mind and purpose of God himself. Jesus is granting full access of his modest life to these two disciples. You remember, Jesus at this point is a vagabond by worldly standards. He's got nothing to hide, nor does he have anything to show off. Why would Jesus grant access of his life to these two men? What, what does Jesus want? Jesus makes his desires extremely well known in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says later in his ministry exactly what he wants to have happen for all who hear his voice. This is what Jesus wants to have happen. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus wants relationship with those who are weary over their sins their weaknesses, and their frailty. Jesus wants relationship with those who feel the spiritually heavy burden of their own sins, pride, and lust. He is determined from eternity past to give rest to the souls who are burdened. But who are the burdened? Who are the weary? Who, friends, who are the heavy laden? These ones are Jesus' elect whose blind eyes he must open, and whose proud hearts he must break by showing them their sinfulness and their great need for his salvation. Do you turn back in your Bibles to John 139? Jesus desires all of his saved, adopted, redeemed children to be strengthened for service to him in this life through teaching and training in righteousness. And it's not a surprise to see Jesus commanding these disciples now to come to him. Jesus knows that Andrew and John the Apostle are his elect. They're his adopted children, and he is going to train them personally in the paths of righteousness for his own namesake. The Greek verb erkomai is in the imperative mood, which is the mood of command. And with this simple, plain, basic verb, come, Jesus is saying, come, I command you. Come, come to me. The Greek verb horao is a future middle indicative which is the verb for see, which is a statement of fact about future events that will have great self-interest for the disciples. Jesus is saying in the verb see, come now and seek. He's saying, come now, because you will be highly personally interested in all that I'm about to show to you. Come and see with great personal interest. Jesus is communicating desire for these men in this comment. I want you to come and see all that I have prepared for you. They passed his heart introspection question with their verbal fumble. He knows that they're a bit nervous, but Jesus steps right past their awkwardness and makes them this most gracious invitation. How do the disciples respond? Exactly the way you'd expect God's chosen, elect, redeemed children to respond, they obeyed. Jesus' gracious command, an invitation to join him. John reports in John 139, so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. The disciples gladly receive Jesus' gracious invitation. They make a wise decision, and they obey his command to come. Now, how did that work out for them? It seems to have worked out really well, friends. 
They've only known Jesus a few hours. And in that few hours' time, they decide the best option that they have with the remainder of the day is to hunker down and shelter with Jesus on the night of day three of Word Witness Week. How do we know that it's evening of the third day in the first week of Jesus' ministry? Well, I'll explain that to you as you turn in your Bibles to Luke 24. You turn to Luke 24, and I'll explain to you how we know this is the night of day three. We know it's evening because of the eyewitness testimony that comes from the Apostle John who tells us it was about the 10th hour. Jewish timekeeping starts at sunrise about 6 a.m., which makes the 10th hour 4 p.m. 4 p.m. is precise. It's too precise to not be eyewitness testimony coming from the second unnamed disciple who is the Apostle John himself. The details of this special day, they had stuck with this man the whole course of his life even to when he's writing his gospel. Leon Morris says, coming to Jesus in the late afternoon and then having the kind of conversation the circumstances indicate almost requires to us to understand spent the day as remained overnight. The verb stay comes from the Greek verb meno, which means to stay, to remain, to live, to dwell or abide. It's the same word used in John 1.33 when God told John that the Holy Spirit would meno, would stay, would abide on Jesus, which is to say, Andrew and the Apostle John, on their first day with Jesus, are making the most of their time with him. They have checked into the Lamb of God bed and breakfast, and they are happy to settle into a great time and lots of conversation with their Savior, the Lord Jesus. James Boyce says, what do you suppose they talked about until nightfall? Well, they didn't talk about the weather, the crazy cold snap of this last week, the snow that's still falling. This wasn't like our awkward, extended family conversations either. You know the ones I'm talking about, which quickly moved from how's work to how about that weather to let's talk about sports and entertainment. No, no, no. Jesus is far more intentional with his conversation. He is intentional about salvation. His sanctification is intentional. And just like we see where you are in Luke 24, 25, where Jesus has a conversation with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus that was highly intentional. They don't recognize him at first when he meets them on the road, which gives Jesus the occasion to ask questions of them and hear from these two men about all the crazy happenings in Jerusalem during Passover AD 33, which has become the talk of the town. And so they share with him about a great prophet crucified and buried and then said to be alive and the tomb is empty. Luke records Jesus' response in Luke 24, 25 saying, and Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. Verse 30 says they got to Emmaus and Jesus stayed with them until verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was opening the Scriptures to us? Jesus' conversation that night on the road to Emmaus caused the spiritual burning in the hearts of these men as Jesus perfectly shared truth with them. And we have to believe this is exactly what happened in the space in our text between John 1.39 and John 1.40. They stayed the night and Jesus shared with them everything about him that he felt necessary at that moment. Would you turn back in your Bibles to John 1.39? James Boyce says, we do not have a record of what was said that evening, 
But whatever it was must have been tremendously exciting for those two original disciples. For when morning came, one of the two who had followed Jesus, Andrew, immediately set out to find Simon Peter, his brother. Well, that's day four. We'll talk about day four next week. Day three of Word Witness Week is the transition away from the eyewitness ministry of John the Baptist to the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' disciples, beginning with the first two, Andrew and the Apostle John. John the Baptist was a powerful preacher of repentance and a faithful mentor to the men who he to the men who to these men who repented. Just as Paul trained Timothy and Martin Luther trained Philip Melanchthon, so too John trained Andrew and the Apostle John to know and love Jesus. To be a disciple of Jesus, you need to respond in faith and obedience as you receive actionable information, positive identification, and a gracious invitation from our Savior to come. Come now. Come see him. Come see who he is. And I pray that you would understand that you have received that invitation to know and to come and to see Jesus today. As our time comes to a close, friends, allow me to ask you very directly, why are you here if not to come and to see Jesus, to come and participate with Jesus in his building his church? Why are you here? What do you seek? What do you seek today? What do you seek? What is your life all about? Do you really seek to know the Jesus of the Bible? Or are you comfortable with the Jesus you've made up in your own mind and you just want a church family that supports your idolatry of Jesus? Is church for you just another gathering of people where you can stir up business contacts for your business, for sales to go up? What do you seek here? What do you seek here? Family? Community? Friends? Why are you here? Have you today decided to follow Jesus? How much mentoring and discipleship do you need for that journey? To whom do you submit for training in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? The call on our lives is very clear. We are called to repentance just like John the Baptist and Jesus preached. We are called to come and to follow Jesus. We are called to a lifetime of abiding, remaining, and staying faithful to Jesus Christ, which only happens in the fellowship of a local church where proper worship, which happens in spirit and truth, is given regularly to God. Friends, is this what you desire? Is this picture of church what you seek? Is this why you came? I pray this is the case. And I'm so thankful that Jesus directed your path to Community Bible Church today. Would you pray with me?